0: to do here and now as we study his word this morning. So 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10, picking up where we left off. You know, I love the I love the various analogies in Scripture, the different metaphors that are brought up to help us as as human beings understand the spiritual truths that are being conveyed to us. And this morning we're going to talk about the cornerstone. We're going to talk about this this illustration of the spiritual house representing our lives in Christ. You know, and uh, you know, so I love these word pictures. I'm a visual person, and a lot of people are, and they learn that way. And I love that God's word speaks to us in that way. Um, you know, Peter is going to continue, as we read in this passage, his exhortation to us of holy living and building a life in Christ. And so... He has talked about a few different ways that we do that, a few different aspects of that. And now he's moving on uh, to talking about Christ being that cornerstone and building a house on him. And so why don't we join together in reading 1 Peter 2, 4 through 10. Let's read this passage together. It says, Coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious you also having living stone are, as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ therefore it is also contained in the scripture behold i lay in zion a chief cornerstone elect precious and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame therefore you who believe he therefore to you who believe he is precious but to those who are disobedient the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are the, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. I love that. That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. So please join me as we pray and ask God's Spirit to, to speak to us and teach us in His Word as only He can. Heavenly Father, I thank You. I thank You for this passage, Lord, this morning. And I thank You for the implications of it, what it means to us in a very real way, in a very uh, tangible way in our daily lives. And Lord, I pray that You would meet each heart where they are at. Lord, You know each person in this building. You know what they need to hear from you. You know how they need to be challenged, how they need to be encouraged, maybe even rebuked, Lord. We need that from time to time, too. And though it isn't fun, we need it. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would do your work. And we thank you for your Word, which is pure and perfect and infallible. Lord, as it says here, uh, Lord, we will never be ashamed when we build our lives on your Word and on you. So we thank you for it. And we look forward to the things you're going to speak to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So it starts off, 1 Peter 2.4, coming to Him as a, to a living stone. You know, in this context and in this language, looking at the grammar of the original language when it's written here, coming to Him, and looking at the context of the audience He's speaking to, first of all, I want to point out that uh, He is not speaking to those coming to Christ as in those coming to Christ for salvation. He's not saying coming to Christ as in receiving Christ initially and being saved. He's actually speaking to those who are saved. And this is a continued exhortation to the church, to those who have already named the name of Christ, those who said, yes, I am a believer, I am a Christian, I'm a disciple of Christ. So he's saying coming to him as to a living stone. In other words, coming to, to him not for salvation, but in a personal and habitual way that of fellowship, that of seeking to walk in daily living and growing. Coming to Him continually is what this is saying. So those of you, speaking to those of you who are coming to Christ each morning, each day, looking to Him as a source of your life and for guidance. As to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. Isn't that typical? Isn't that how it kind of always is? The world has their set of standards and it's pretty much exactly the opposite of what God's, God's way is, isn't it? You can, kind of, you can kind of gauge that. If the world thinks it's great, it's probably a pretty good indication that's not what you want to do. That's just a real easy way to figure things out. Make a decision. Does, does the world say this is awesome and promote it? Okay, great. I know what not to do. We'll go that way. But indeed rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. It reminds me of um, one of my favorite movies, Sergeant York. I mean, have you seen Sergeant York, it's an old black and white with Gary Cooper. I love that movie. Um, but it's because it's a story about a guy that got a, a, a guy that God really got a hold of. And he was your uh, typical drunk Hellraiser kind of guy, really good with a gun, and, uh, you know, cool guy. Not really, actually. The gun part was cool, but anyway, he God got a hold of him in a pretty dramatic way. He was one of those people that just was like, well, if God wants to speak to me or reach me, he's going to have to... He's going to have to really make it obvious. And God did. And God really got a hold of him. Um, but uh, it's a story about how he, uh, in seeking to follow God, was, was objecting to going to war. And he didn't want to go to war because he didn't want to kill anyone because the Bible says, do not kill. And he was really wrestling with the decision of what to do. And um, he ended up on the scripture that says, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And that's, that's what God spoke to him in, in feeling like, okay, I need, to, I need to go ahead and obey. I need to go. I'm, I'm being drafted. And, uh, and so he went, and God used him mightily in the war. And his entire motivation was not to take lives, but to save them. But I'll never forget a scene in there that, that, is, that really is, kind of illustrates this, is he had just ended up capturing well over 120 Nazis, And he's uh, leading them through the trenches and trying to get to a place where he can get rid of this crew because there's like eight of them watching all these people. This is a true story. And so he talks to the commanding officer that he is is now his prisoner and says, hey, if you were trying to get back to company whatever, which way would you go? And the the officer thinks for a second. The Nazi officer goes, well, I would go this way. And so Sergeant York says, well, then we'll go this way. (laughs) And off they go. (laughs) And sure enough, they made it back. But that was how he made his decision because he wasn't familiar with the area. He would kind of ask them, well, which way would you go? And he just would do the opposite and it seemed to work pretty well. And I think that's a pretty good spiritual principle for us. Jesus Christ being rejected by men but chosen by God and precious. Our standards are different than the world's. Uh, the way we make decisions, what we see as valuable and important is going to be different. He's the living stone And I would say to you, not only the living stone, but he is the very source of life itself. John 5, 25 through 26, if you're taking notes, says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. And of course, John 14, 6, we know very well, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to run through a few scriptures with you uh, quickly here this morning. John 11:25 25-26 says, I am the res- resurrection and the life. This is Jesus speaking here. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And he's challenging those who are listening to him. So Christ, this living stone, coming to him as this living stone, first of all, talking about that first word, living, That it isn't just that He Himself is alive, which is something we rejoice in, amen? We don't serve a God that's dead. We don't serve an unrisen Savior. He's alive. But He is also the source of life. He is our source of life. And we're going to go on to read, as we read just a minute ago, we're going to get into the part where it talks about how we are also as living stones. And it's because of the living stone that we become like one. Peter uses this term living as well, if you recall, we studied earlier in chapter 1 and, uh, in, in two places where it refers to Christ as a living hope and also the living word. And so now we're looking at living stone. And this is a bit of a theme for Peter, uh, making an emphasis that Christ is indeed alive, that we serve a living God. we don't serve, a, And that's contrasted with a God of stone that isn't alive. And that was common in those days, wasn't it? They had their idols made of stone and wood that they would serve. And those were not alive. That's a pretty big contrast there to be made between those idols and those things that were worshipped and served and looked to for deliverance or whatever it may be. And these were stones that were not living. These are dead stones. Jesus is not that, obviously. And he's making a very important contrast there culturally for them. They knew exactly what he's referring to. So Peter goes on in digging a little deeper about this stone now, this living stone. I wanted to look at what does the terms, what is the word stone, or how is stone used throughout the Bible as a metaphor? What does the Bible talk about when it, uses, when it, when it talks about a stone? And the first thing that came to my mind as well was, well, what's the difference between a stone and a rock? You ever wonder that? I always wondered. I don't know. My mind works weird that way. Like, stone, rock, is that just interchangeable? What's the difference here, or is there a difference? I don't know. Well, so I thought I'd check it out. So I'll share with you what I found, and it's actually kind of interesting um, because there is a bit of a difference. Uh, some of it is cultural, some of it is linguistic, and how we use the term. Uh, you know, for example, you know, you never talk about going stone climbing; you talk about going rock climbing. You know, you, you, and there's various uh, phrases that we use that we only use one or the other, and for for particular reason. But we see also an interesting consistency throughout Scripture as to how. The term stone is used versus rock. And I just want to highlight that for you this morning and do a little walk through scripture uh, to help illustrate and bring clarity to what Peter's saying here, calling Christ a living stone. So I'm going to give you some examples. We're going to go through a few scriptures. You can jot these down or attempt to to keep up. I'm going to move kind of quickly through some of these. But there is a, what I would submit to you this morning, what I want to encourage you in, is there is a specific reason that he says stone it's not just, is that rock, stone? I'll say stone, why not? You know, it's not, that, it's not random. and Nothing in God's Word is. We know that all of it is purposeful and so it always does us well to study and look and see what's being meant here. So, first of all, I'm, I'm going to go through a few of these. We see that the term stone used in a reference in Samuel and we see stones used for weapons. In biblical culture and biblical times, stone was used for a weapon. We see David. What did he take out of the brook when he was about to face Goliath. He took five stones. And we read that passage in 1 Samuel 17.40. He took his staff in his hand and he chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. And off he went to battle. So we see stones used as a weapon. We also see them used as memorials and reminders. Memorials and reminders. And we see that there's, there's so many verses we could go through, obviously, with that. Um, but in Joshua 4.2, uh, they're told by God to take for, it says, take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one from each tribe, and command them saying, take for yourselves 12 stones from here and out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. So he's talking about it where God again parted the waters for them to cross the Jordan. And he said, take these 12 stones, and that these may be a sign among you when your children ask you in time to come, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, when it crossed over the Jordan, and the waters of the Jordan were cut off. And these stones shall be for memorial to the children of Israel forever. And we see throughout Scripture, if you read through the Old Testament, many times uh, stones were stacked or built up or arranged in a certain way to remind the people of what God had done. And they're a symbol of something that's a lasting memorial, something that's not going to fall apart or degrade over time. So we see weapons, we see memorials and reminders, we also see altars, don't we? Altars throughout Scripture are, were built of stone. One of my favorite references is in 1 Kings 18.31, when Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the 12 tribes of, of Israel, uh, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And then with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And that's part of the story of him uh, doing a little bit of a face-off with these false prophets and proving who was the true and living God. But he built that altar and reinforced that altar out of stones. Also, obviously, in architecture, which relates clearly to what we're reading this morning, but in 1 Kings 6.36, in speaking of building of the temple, it says, and he built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. So seen here, we see it, again, referenced in Scripture, uh, that stones were a critical portion, part of architecture very practically in that day and throughout their history and so, it had a very vivid picture in their minds of what a stone was, I and mean, it's a very clear association made there. We see his stones even used for pillows. Remember Jacob? When he uh, uh, was short of down feathers, and he's out there in the desert, he uses a stone for a pillow. Genesis 28. He came out of Beersheba and went to Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set, and he took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head that he may lay down and sleep. So we see stones throughout Scripture used very practically in many different ways in their culture and in their time. And a stone uh, was something that had a very uh, important significance to them. Uh, And so when you talked about Christ being the stone or the cornerstone, uh, there was some depth and meaning there. This word stone in the Greek means also to build or a stone uh, that also can refer to Uh, diverse weights or measurements. Uh, And so, what is the point of all this? Why are we going through all these scriptures and why are we spending so much time talking about this word stone? Well, I think clearly in reading these verses, and we'll talk about the word rock later as a contrast, but the word stone is used very purposefully uh, to indicate something that has specific purpose or usefulness in human life, culture, or architecture. And thus, this stone is truly indicative of the most needful and purposeful of all stones by design and title. And so, the word stone, again, is not just another rock. Uh, We see that throughout Scripture, stone very specifically referenced uh, a rock that had purpose, that had meaning. We see it used as a weapon in architecture, for altars, for memorials, even for pillows. For all these things throughout Scripture but is a critical to human life and used in various practical applications. So now we can understand that this stone referring to Jesus Christ's essential purpose and place in our life. A very practical and essential purpose and place in all of aspects of our life. He is truly that stone. And we can see it in the history and in the future. Uh, just the very existence of all humankind, we see this practical purposefulness and you can see in that culture, unlike today, stones were commonly known uh, for, as being extremely versatile in their usefulness. And so, you know, we don't see that today. Obviously, we use concrete and we use we use steel and we use various things for structures. But back then, if you wanted to build a good house, you built it out of stone. You, that's how you built a good, solid structure that was going to last. And so to that culture, it was very significant. For us, we don't obviously see that really. Um, but again, not just any stone, but a living stone. Rejected by men and chosen by God. You know, again, these go hand in hand. John 15, 18 uh, says, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Remember Jesus speaking those words. He said, he went on to say, If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So understand our guilt by association understand that as followers of Christ, we also will be seen as that stone, rejected indeed by the world, rejected by men. If it is our aim, therefore, to be accepted by this world, we're going to have a bit of a problem, aren't we, as Christians? We're going to come to a bit of a roadblock in our lives. If our goal is to be accepted by this world or to uh, you know be rejoiced in by this world and and to conform to this world's uh, method of, of approval, we're going to have a very serious problem, aren't we, as Christians? Because by design and by very nature, the standards of God, the things that are valuable to God, are not valuable or true or good to the world. There's an inherent, there's an inherent contradiction there. And this word, what's interesting, this word rejected here in Scripture, looking that up, It also is translated in the King James Version, disallowed. uh, And it refers to not just a personal rejection of something, but this this word actually infers a feeling greater than that. It actually um, connotates not even wanting it to be allowed, sort of being on a personal mission to eradicate. Uh, So when it says this was rejected by men, it doesn't mean that they just personally said, ah, that's not for me. And they were satisfied with that. No, look at the Pharisees. Were they okay with just not following Jesus? No, they weren't, were they? What did they want to do? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to get rid of him. They wanted him out of their culture. They wanted him out of their lives. He was disrupting them. And so, in the same manner, we see that today, don't we? it not enough for us as Christians and followers of Christ to simply do our thing and the world does theirs. Uh, it's getting to that point now we're seeing even in our country where we're asked to be silent, aren't we? We're asked to we're asked in a very real way to not live out our faith. It's not okay for us to stand on the principles that we believe in anymore, is it? according to according to the world, according to our society, they're going, yeah, that's nice that you have that religion and that belief, but as long as it stays in your house, as long as it doesn't, you don't take it with you into the rest of your life. As long as we never see it, and it never bothers us in what we want to do as a society. Well, that's, that doesn't work, does it? That doesn't work as a Christian. Our identity isn't left at the doorstep when we leave our house. At least it shouldn't be. Not if we're following God's Word. Our identity in Christ transcends everything we do in life. But this word, rejected by men, really uh, speaks to an, an actual attempt to completely eradicate this living stone. To get rid of it, they don't want anything to do with it. They don't want to be confronted with it. As we're going to read later on, it is an offense to them. But this very same stone, chosen by God and precious, and precious to us as we read, something of incredible worth and value. God's purposeful design was to do exactly what was unnatural to us as humans to come in humility. To come to conquer sin. He didn't come to conquer Rome, did he? You know, and the Jews in that day, they were frustrated with Jesus and many times questioned, was he the Messiah? Because he didn't come as they wanted him to come. He didn't come to do what they wanted him to do. He didn't come to come as a conquering king. He came as a humble servant. And that was, that was something that was frustrating to them, something that they did not want to accept. He also did not come to make them feel good about themselves. He didn't come to give them warm fuzzies about their religiosity or their their self-centered holiness or self-righteousness. But again, precious to God. And as we spoke about last week, we have to realize how valuable Jesus is. And in doing so, it makes us realize how valuable we are to God. How, what value God places on us that He would send Christ on our behalf. And so, reading on, it says, A cornerstone. Sorry, I lost my place there. Stone in Judah. G- and you, as living stones, are also being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so, seeing as my notes got out of order, I'm going to skip back and forth here. What does it mean to be built up a spiritual house? Okay, so what is he talking about? Uh, throughout the Bible, again, in studying this word house and what's being talked about, he's really speaking of our, our family heritage, our, our legacy, our life's work, or what the result of our life is. And so he's talking about us being built up as a spiritual house our house, when founded on Christ, will produce a certain result, bringing glory to God and causing people to desire Him as we have Him. but building our house on any other foundation will have a very different result. Hebrews 3:3 says, "For this one has been counted worthy of more honor and glory than Moses, speaking of Christ, inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God, and Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward. But Christ as a son over all his own house, whose house we are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. So we have to ask ourselves, will we be proud of the result of our life, of what our house looks like as we get to the end? will we have built it on the foundation or will we have had to see it washed away by the storm over and over again and we have to rebuild it over and over again because it wasn't built on the proper foundation? You know, I think something we're very all, all familiar with who live up here. Those of us who are locals to the mountain are familiar with the term mountain construction. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, we've seen mountain construction. It's not a compliment, by the way. Um, you know, I, had a, I worked out of an office... Uh, once upon a time, up here on the mountain, and that had been kind of remodeled and fixed up and painted, and, and it looked really nice, uh, you know, from the uh, superficial glance. It looked great. But as I worked there, I began to kind of look around and kind of look at the architecture involved in this office. And I began, because I was, I was thinking, of course, of, of uh, you know, fixing up the office for myself and making it a good workspace. So, of course, I was looking at where I could put rock climbing holds and things like that. And and I and I realized in looking at the structure, uh, you know, I was like looking at the rafters and the and the beams and how they were connected, and everything's just kind of hodgepodge toenailed together. And I'm go, I'm looking at it and I began to realize what in the world is holding that beam up? It's other than these little nails that I'm looking at, and and I'm realizing that I'm not sure if the roof is holding the beams or the beams are holding the roof. Like I really don't know. <laughs> But the way this thing is put together is just so scary. I'm like, I'm just going to back out of this building right now and have someone who knows what they're doing come and like fix it, and then I'll come back and work. But it's kind of scary. Pretty darn scary. But that's what our house looks like when it's not built on the cornerstone of Christ. You know, it is this thing that we can paint it and spruce it up and try and make it look It looked good at a glance. It It was really well decorated and all this stuff. But you look closely enough and you realize, man, this is kind of scary. There is not much substance here. This isn't very well built. This certainly isn't going to weather a storm. This certainly isn't going to stand the test if, if an earthquake comes through. I wouldn't want to be in here. <laughs> you know, but what kind of house are we going to have? What kind of house are we going to How are we building our lives? Is what's being said. When it talks about our house, our spiritual house being built up. So spiritually speaking, on what do we base... Our lives. What do we base our decisions? On what do we base our motivations for doing everything we do? Everything we do. On what do we base those things? We have to ask that question. Are we being built up as a spiritual house according to the cornerstone of Christ? Are we walking in this holy priesthood he talks about to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ you know, we as believers not only comprise the church, we not only make up the church, but we serve in it and we minister in it. We're that priesthood. And there's a whole layer now missing in the relationship to God. Remember in the old covenant, you had all the people, right? The people of God. And then between the people of, and, and God was what? The priesthood, right? There was the, the chosen priests, uh, the Levites. And the Levitical priesthood really represented sort of this barrier and this inability to go to God directly. But now we are all called priests of God. We are all now called His holy and royal priesthood because we only need one mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ. Amen? And we have direct access to the throne of God. So we are His priests. We are the ones who represent Him now to the world. And we seek Him directly. We serve Him directly. Offering spiritual sacrifices. Um... You know, this is something where, again, we can look at Scripture and get insight into. What's he talking about? Offering spiritual sacrifices. This word sacrifice could also be translated in offering. You know, but we see in Hebrews 13, it says, Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. We kind of did that this morning already, didn't we? In offering up our voices and praising God. You know, we were created to bring praise to our God. That's one of the things we were designed for. One of our purposes for even existing was to bring Him glory and honor. And when we fail to do that, there is this sense of something missing, isn't there? There's really this lack. Because it's something we find great fulfillment in. It's something we were designed to do. But it's a considered a spiritual sacrifice to offer this, something, this thing up to God, something that is well-pleasing to Him, something that builds fellowship with Him. So that is giving praise to His name, giving honor to His character and to who He is. But it goes on in Hebrews 13, saying, But do not forget to do good and to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And so, not only sacrifices of praise, but of doing good, doing good to others, to share, to, to be there for each other, to supply each other's need. Those are spiritual sacrifices. And if you remember, in Scripture, we're, we're taught that when we do this to the least of these, we're doing it unto who? We're doing it unto Him, aren't we? And so it is actually a service to God when we serve one another. It's a sacrifice to God. Spiritual sacrifices, well-pleasing to Him. Psalms 107, uh, Psalm 116 also refers to this. Uh, It says, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness, for His wonderful works among the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies. This is Romans 12.1. Sorry, I'm kind of reading right through these. Romans 12.1 says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So presenting ourselves physically as our, our bodies, our very lives, to the Lord is also, in Scripture, taught to us as a spiritual sacrifice. That is one of the things we can do. So that is what we are to do as these living stones offering, being this royal priesthood, offering these spiritual sacrifices. These are some examples of one of the sacrifices we can offer. That which is acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And again, it is only through Him. As His Word says, without faith, it is... How easy to please God? It's impossible. And faith starts with the object of our faith in whom we place our faith. Jesus Himself Romans 8 was one of your homework assignments last week. So if I read some of this, it should be familiar to you, right? You all read that, I know. Romans 8 talks a bit about this aspect of spiritual sacrifices, spiritual living, and how it is through and in Christ and through the Spirit that we must live. It says in Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, and that was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin he condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. To be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So, it starts by faith in Christ. It starts by salvation. It starts by stepping into that, by even having a spiritual life to begin with. We were spiritually dead before Christ. And so, that's why it says here that these spiritual sacrifices we're offering are acceptable to God through Christ because it's only through Him that we even have the ability to offer anything pleasing to the Lord. And now, Peter goes on, as we read on here in 1 Peter, he goes on to reference Several key Old Testament scriptures referring uh, to Christ as the stone, and to further illustrate his point in this spiritual analogy that he's giving us, here first Isaiah 28:16, to Psalm 118, 22, and Isaiah 8:14. And I'm going to go back through those. So if you missed that, I'll repeat that again. So reading on in verse six, it says, "Therefore it is also contained in Scripture: Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect." precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. And he's quoting Isaiah 28, 16 here, which says, and I'm going to read a little bit more to get the context. It says in Isaiah 28, starting in verse 15, Because you've said we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. But we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. And so it's talking He's speaking as if the people are saying this and he's saying that they have, uh, that they have taken shelter in lies and that, they, that under falsehood they've hidden themselves. In other words, they think that they can escape the consequences of their sin and their actions by deceiving, by doing things contrary to what God has commanded. And then he goes on in verse 16 saying, "...therefore thus says the Lord God, behold I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation." A tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. Also, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies. And the waters will overflow the hiding place. And your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with hell will not stand. And when the overflowing scourge passes through then you will be trampled down by it. And so he's illustrating pretty harshly here. If you build this false house on these lies and on these things, you think you can escape the consequences of your sin and rebellion against God. Think again. And it's meant to be a harsh warning in this passage that if you build on any other foundation than this one, this cornerstone, this precious cornerstone, and it's cool how he talks about further... Uh, detail of this construction analysis saying that it's the measuring line and it's the source of finding the plumb line. But he says if you build on anything else, you're going to be wiped out. And, and so Peter is referring to this passage. You know, but he also gives us a precious promise that we'll never regret building our lives on the foundation of Christ. That it's a decision we'll not be ashamed of when all is accounted for. In verse seven, therefore you who believe, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So I'm going to kind of go back to my cornerstone notes here since I had things out of order. What is the cornerstone? And what what does this term mean? What is it talking about? Is it just a stone that's in the corner? In other words. No, and I think those of us who have studied this before know better. You know, but it's interesting to think of how, well, why would it be a cornerstone? Isn't that sort of contrary and opposed to the idea of Jesus being central in our lives? We have him off in the corner over here. What is being talked about? And clearly, obviously, this is a, an analogy or a metaphor that's being brought forth that's speaking to sound construction. But this cornerstone is really, especially in ancient architecture... Uh, was one of the most important pieces of the entire building. And why is that? Well, the rest of the building itself is guided by and compared to that cornerstone. That cornerstone was that first and most important piece of the foundation because they spent the most time in, in perfecting that stone, making sure it was absolutely the right size, shape, angle, every dimension was just right, that it was laid just right because when they went on to build the rest of the house or the building or the structure everything else in that structure would be compared to that cornerstone. In other words, it isn't straight if it doesn't line up with the cornerstone. It isn't level if it doesn't line up with the cornerstone. It isn't plumb if it doesn't line up with the cornerstone. So you better be sure that cornerstone is sound, right? You better make sure that that's a good cornerstone. And so That was a very critical aspect of any good sound building. Uh, You didn't skip that step if you wanted to build a solid, lasting structure. You know, we have insight as to the, the the critical element of a cornerstone, actually in Job, when God is challenging Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? And to what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? You see, the cornerstone itself is actually the foundation's foundation. It is what, what guides the rest of the structure of the, that holds up the rest of the building. It is, it is really, truly the, the foundation's foundation. It sets the standard. It was also typically one of the largest stones in the entire foundation uh, and more, more deeply rooted and grounded, more carefully crafted, as I mentioned and being the first step. In modern times, we actually do see cornerstones used. You'll look around in some buildings that were just built in the past couple hundred years, or even recently, and sometimes symbolically, they'll put a cornerstone in. Maybe maybe you've seen this. But that cornerstone, usually will have a plaque or an engraving on it, and symbolically, that cornerstone is meant to represent the chief purpose of that building. It also is meant to dedicate it, and to give honor to those who made its erection possible. And so you see that that cornerstone and it isn't, doesn't have the structural significance uh, that it used to, but it has more of a spiritual significance or significance as to the purpose of that building. It really clearly states, listen, this is why this building was built and this is on behalf of who was built or these are the people who even made it possible to build it. So that cornerstone still is that preeminent stone in the foundation, really talking about the purpose of the rest of the building. And that is the cornerstone. And that is what Jesus is meant to be. I love what Ephesians 2.20 has to say about it. It says, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And so again we see the foundation uh, is not just Christ in this, in this illustration, but that Christ holds the entire foundation together. But we're also see it illustrated a different way when speaking of a rock, building our house on the rock, But it says, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So we're not only individually houses unto God, but also collectively. So it's interesting how in Scripture it's illustrated as we individually have this spiritual house that we're building, but also collectively as the body of Christ we have this spiritual house that we're building and this kingdom of God that is meant to be established. And so there's this collective sense of, of the foundation being Christ collectively, but also individually, personally, very intimately, is Christ our foundation. And there's those two contrasted things. You know, if you've ever watched the construction of a building or a house, you'll notice that, they, that for a long time, how many of you saw actually and watched sort of the construction of, you notice down there by Citrus Plaza, what's that new plaza called, Mountain... Plaza or something, right by Citrus Plaza there in Redlands, they built all those new buildings and shopping centers and all that. Many of you know what I'm talking about. We've noticed for uh, months and months and months, it seemed like nothing was happening, right? It's just a bunch of tractors and graders and stuff driving around. And then next thing you know, I drive down there and all of a sudden these buildings pop out out of nowhere. And why is that? Well, they spend so much time making the foundation right and making sure that everything is set so that the rest of the building will be good. That's where a lot of the energy and effort goes into, is setting the grade and, and laying the foundation, making sure that everything built in the future is going to be solid. After that, it's pretty simple. The walls go up, the, build, the, the trusses go on, they start putting the signs up and everything kind of slaps together. But the reason that all the rest of that goes so well is because they spent the time they did on the foundation. And that speaks very clearly to us, doesn't it, spiritually? Are we spending time on that foundation? Is the foundation of our lives truly where it needs to be in every aspect? And if so, that makes life pretty simple for us, doesn't it? If we're not so concerned with pleasing everyone around us or or, or matching up with what the world has in its value systems, if we're not so confused and disoriented and frustrated by pursuing the things of, of this earth, the things that Satan would distract us with, life can be pretty simple, if we're seeking to please God alone, that's pretty simple. It may not be easy, but it's pretty simple, isn't it? All we have to do, really, is look at comparing Scripture uh, with what we're looking to do, and go, does it match up? Does it fit with this plumb line? Am I following Christ or not? Am, am I in line with what He would have in His established Word or not? And that can be very... It can suddenly simplify our lives in a pretty dramatic way. Where now I'm not concerned so much with what my friends think or my coworkers think or... Well, how does this work out legally? Or how does this work out? Obviously, we won't take into account legality, but I mean, you know, it, typically, if we're doing things according to the honesty and ethical nature of, of Christ and His Word, uh, it really sets all those things right, doesn't it? And it makes it very simple. We really have one question to ask when building our spiritual house is, is it built on the foundation of and in line with Christ Himself as the cornerstone? You know, and verse seven, so picking up in First Peter, going back to what he says there, therefore to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And that's Psalm one eighteen twenty two being quoted there. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and this is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And Jesus himself also quotes this passage. He quotes this passage in Matthew twenty one forty two. And in there he says Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it, and whoever falls on the stone will be broken, and on whomever it falls it will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the Pharisees heard these parables, and they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. But Jesus uses these same scriptures to illustrate a very important point that though Israel, he's speaking to them as Israel, he says that how what will be taken, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. In other words, he's speaking of the ushering in of the kingdom of God being the church, now transcending not just a culture or a race such as God's chosen special Jewish people, which doesn't mean we replaced them. They're still His chosen people. But now we have this nation who was not a nation as we read, and we're going to read here. We have those who have received mercy who have not received mercy. We are now His spiritual house, His chosen people, and built on the cornerstone of God Himself. And Jesus reads from the same passage. Jesus quotes the same passage in Psalm 118. And but to those who reject him, he is a source of offense. Reading on in verse 8, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, which is from Isaiah 8.14. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. The word here is the same word we read earlier, which speaks clearly of the gospel message. And so they're disobedient to the gospel, they're disobedient to Christ. And it's interesting that he's continuing to weave in this thread of obedience Versus disobedience, and how it's such a defining factor in who are followers of Christ and who aren't. Reading on, I want to um, bring your attention to a passage that we're all familiar with. Kind of had me singing a children's song this week: um, "A wise man builds his house on the rock." You ever heard that song? "Foolish man builds his house on the sand." Well, I've heard a couple of different versions. I'm sure. I remember salty the singing songbook. I love that that stuff. I had good memories of that. So I was singing Salty this last week as I was thinking of this. But it's interesting how this, Jesus ties in the same thread of obedience versus disobedience in Matthew 7:24, And he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. But whoever hears these things of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. When the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and and it fell and great was its fall. And so we see that Jesus himself talks about this disobedience as opposed to obedience. How if we're true followers of Christ, if we're truly building our foundation on the rock, if Christ is our cornerstone, then it plays out in our obedience of His commands if we follow what He said for us to do. And now here we see sort of contrasted a rock versus a stone. And we don't have a lot of time to spend on this subject, but in having already talked about what a stone is in Scripture and its practical usefulness, sort of speaking uh, more of stones smaller in size as opposed to a rock we see in Scripture tends to speak of something huge, something uh, that is, is more of a pinnacle or a landmark, uh, something upon which everything could be founded and based. For example, the Lord isn't called the stone of our salvation. He's called the rock of our salvation. We see in Second Samuel 22, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. Who is a God except the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? Blessed be my rock, let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. Psalm 31 says, Bow your ear to me, deliver me speedily, my rock of my refuge, the fortress and my deliverer. Psalm 62, In God my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength. So we see Him called the rock of our salvation, the rock of our refuge, the rock of our strength. We see an illustration of this general sense of building our entire house on the rock of God himself, on the rock of Christ. And so there's a bit of a contrast between what a stone is and what a rock is. And it's just an interesting study to do throughout Scripture. Uh, We don't have time to get more deeply into it. But I want to wrap up some of these thoughts here in this passage and read on in verse 9 and 10. It says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. So Peter wraps up his thoughts here with really an encouraging reminder of who and what we are in Christ. He repeats some of the things he's mentioned before, but he also ascribes some titles that were once applied only to Israel. It's interesting here how some of these things he's talking here, as I read in Jesus' words earlier, how he says, the kingdom of God will be taken from them and given to those who show the fruit of it. He's ascribing these titles now which were once only applied to Israel, to the church, to us. He says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His own special people that you may may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light who were once not a people but now are a people of God who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. And he's quoting there from Hosea 2 verse 23. You know, the Jews misunderstood the mystery of the gospel and the plan for salvation. They thought God chose them to be the one and only saved special people and they kind of clung to that and they really missed the big picture, didn't they? God didn't chose them to be the one and only saved special people. God chose them so that through them all would be saved and salvation would be brought to all men and to all peoples and all nations. As it says in Genesis 26, 4, prophesied from the very beginning, and sometimes it's baffling that they would miss it. It says, and I will make your descendants, speaking to Abraham, I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of the heaven, and I will give your descendants all these lands, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So, even from the beginning, the very first book in the Bible, we know that God's plan was to bring salvation to all. It wasn't just to choose this special people, and they're just His special people. No, He, they're the people through whom He brought salvation to all. They're the people through whom He made us all a holy nation, a special people, a chosen generation. And so, in conclusion as his chosen people, as his royal priesthood, we are called to declare his praises, to offer these sacrifices up before all the world. We are called to declare his attributes and his goodness. And in this declaration, along with holy living and serving as his royal priesthood, we are merely it's merely the proper response to his mercy, as it says here. That we who are not a people are now a people and who had not obtained mercy, we've received mercy. So all these things That we do in building our life on the foundation of Christ is merely a proper response to the mercy we've received. So, is your life truly built on the rock of Christ? Is He truly your cornerstone? Or does your house need to be rebuilt? Does it need to be scraped down to the foundation? Or maybe it needs to just be built all over again? And we have to really look sometimes. Sometimes we do some room additions that aren't very well founded. Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves and start building the upper deck without building the supports for it. You know, we want to see the roof go up. We want to see the walls go up. Sometimes we get in a hurry, you know, don't we? Uh, You know, God wants to spend more time on the foundation in our lives and we're anxious to put the walls up. We're anxious to get the first floor on. And God says, hold up. We're still working on the foundation. We're still getting it established. We're still getting it plumb in your life. We're still getting it square. And if you start throwing the walls up now, it's not going to look pretty. It's going to come tumbling down. It's going to be something that, as it says here, is going to bring shame, as opposed to those who truly make Christ their cornerstone, who guaranteed will not be ashamed. In the day of judgment, when it all is said and done, we will have nothing to be ashamed of. We'll be very thankful and very proud, uh, just very humbled at what God has done in and through our lives if we choose to make Him truly and practically our cornerstone. The measurement upon, by which we we gauge everything. The decisions we make and how we live our lives. Uh, so I want to encourage you uh, to just do that examination as, as, uh, as David said in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Sometimes we have to Pray that ourselves, don't we? We have to ask God to go ahead and put the plumb line up. Go ahead and put the level on and see if there's something we need to recalibrate. Maybe there's that. Maybe we need to, break, we need to demo that, that whole half of the house and, and start over and let the foundation be laid properly. But I encourage you, don't be afraid to let God go to work. Don't be afraid to let the master architect break some walls down and, and build some things anew. Because when he does it, it's good. Amen? Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain to build it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning and for the great hope it gives us in You. And Lord, I pray that You would give us clarity, Lord, in the building of our spiritual houses. We look at what does our life represent? What does it look like? What does it stand for? I pray that we would be humble and honest with that picture. And Lord, does it represent You? Is it built upon Your principles and who You are? Does it reflect an accurate and and a, and a solid and sure foundation, one in which we will never be moved or shaken? And Lord, if if not, I pray that you would do your work, Lord. I pray that we would be humble enough and willing to let you work. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not even laid that foundation, who has not received Christ, I pray that they would take that opportunity to do so today, to not leave this place without having laid that foundation. And so, Lord, we give you the rest of this time together. We ask your spirit to continue the work you've begun. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.